0: Well, I was just thinking, she was singing um, Immortal, Invisible, You're the God of Forever and Ever, Amen, Alpha and Omega. I was just singing that and thinking about the Pentateuch, and just so we started at the very beginning um, with God's creation, and we're picking up this story, we're just jumping in to this redemptive story that's really the forever and ever story of God and his plan, and uh, it was just so worshipful. Um, Singing that, and I'm just encouraged. But I am, um, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy this morning. And uh, the first disclaimer is this that we, um, the material that we've got has come from, at least what Rose gave me, came from Capitol Hill Baptist and by Mark Deaver. And I just want to credit that. It's a wonderful teaching. And so um, a lot of what I'm telling you this morning is really following along with his teaching and um, the, ha- the handout that you have there is sort of a loose outline of what I'll say, and it comes from, from that teaching out of Capitol Hill. Okay, so we're starting off with Deuteronomy, and it's the last book of the Pentateuch, number five, and it's sort of, you could think of it as a famous last speech, because it's Moses and the Israelites, and they're there standing on the plains of Moab. They're just across from the Jordan River, or they're just across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. It's 1400 B.C., and they're about to go in. I mean, all this time, all this stuff has happened, and they're there, they're about to go in. And what we have in the book of Deuteronomy is essentially a big speech. It's actually three speeches, but it's Moses' speech to them before they go into the promised land. So uh, the other books that had lots of action and maybe even like Genesis covered lots of time, this is just a speech. This is Moses' last word. And Nancy Guthrie pointed out, she said, some of you have been in this spot where you've maybe had a child leave home for the first time or go to college, and you've had that moment of standing on the curb, and it's like, what'd he say? You know, they're about to go. You've had them all this time. You've been with them. You've taught them. You've said so much, and now it's here. Like, you're leaving, and in this case, Moses knows he's going to die. He's not going in. These are his last words, his final chance to say something to them, and this is what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. It's what he says. And um, the uh, the first generation has died at this point, and this this is the second generation ready to go in. Deuteronomy one one and one three, uh, Moses tells them. He says that these are actually that says these are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, in the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded them, him concerning them. And Mark Deaver says, he says, there's more at stake than just a place to live. They've been redeemed from slavery. They've been constituted as a nation. They've been brought into covenant with Yahweh. They've been given good laws and a tabernacle where God's glory dwells. This possession of the land of Canaan is the last puzzle piece to come together for God to make good on all his promises to Abraham. So all the promises that were made. They're right there, ready to take the last puzzle piece to take the land. And um, he says, uh, and future generations are going to look back on the Deuteronomy. It's, It's a core book in the Old Testament. It's actually, interestingly, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. And for years, the Israelites will look back on this giving of the law. Deuteronomy actually means second Law. So it's the second giving of law. It's the review, the, re- the repeat. And uh, the generations will look back on it for years and refer to it. Uh, verse 29, 12 through 13 says, You're standing here, Moses telling you, you're standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you as his people. So here's his people poised and ready. To take the land. Now, let's look for a second at just how the book is structured, and just kind of get an understanding of that. It's three speeches. The first speech is chapters one through four, and it's a historical prologue. So it's sort of just the review of what has happened. Okay, and it's really a lot of a review of numbers. What has happened, and then the next big hunk is going to be. Let's see what chapters five through twenty-six. That's the longest speech, that's the second speech, and in that speech is when he really gets into going back over the law, and he reviews the law, and then the third speech is short again, it's 27 through 30, and in that speech, he goes over the blessings and curses that are going to result, if they're faithful or unfaithful to the covenant, so it's sort of the ramifications of the covenant. So you've got the history, the second giving of the law the review of the covenant. And then there's a little conclusion where uh, Moses prophesies the future, the exile that's coming. He prophesies more. um, Actually, he goes into the blessing, the atonement that's coming. There's a lot of hope in the end. And then ultimately the transfer of leadership to Joshua and Moses dies. So it ends with a little conclusion. So that's the structure of it. We've got this giant speech um, here. Well, let's look at the first speech, which is the historical prologue. It's chapters one through four, and he's going to go back over with them what's happened. Now, as I was reading this, this was so, so powerful to me reading to this because essentially he's talking about what happened to the first generation, the unfaithfulness of the first generation. Um, and if you remember from Numbers, you know, just how God had t- well He's told them all along to take the land. But you remember they got there and they sent the spies out. Well, God just told them to take the land. He didn't even tell them to t- send spies out. But they said, well, hold on. You know, let's, let's check it out. They send the spies. And you remember um, only two come back with, with encouragement, like we can God can do this. Um, but they come back and the people are frightened by what they hear. And, um, and it was so interesting to hear because over and over reading that, In these four chapters, over and over, you hear Moses going, the land the Lord gave you, God who will fight for you. He's the Lord. Don't fear. He's the Lord. It's over and over again, Moses telling them, you know God is the Lord. You're his people. And then you hear the people's response of just murmuring and complaining. And listen to some of the things they said when, and this is the review, what the things that people said when they were frightened. They said, God hates us. actually said, God hates us. He's just going to have us die. He brought us out of Egypt just to give us to the Amorites. He doesn't, what they're essentially saying is God is not intending good for us. God hates us. Look what he's done to us. He's just going to have us be killed by the Amorites. Listen to what they were believing in their head about what God thought towards them. It's just shocking in the midst of being told over and over again, God loves you. And you have this sort of he said, she said, the people saying God hates us. God's not doing good for us. God's not taking care of us. And Moses reminding them again and again, God is for you. God fights for you. Look at the guy. Look at what he's done for you. He reminds them God fought for you. And listen to what he says. He says, as a man carries his son all the way that you went, God carried you that the whole time they were in the wilderness, Moses said it was as if God was carrying you as a son. He went before you with the um, with the pillar and the fire. And he says, um, he went before you. Not only he, did he provide food for you every day, but even the places where they pitched their tent. It says God went before you to prepare a place for you to pitch your tent. I never thought about me. I mean, God was utterly taking care of them every step of the way. Isn't that amazing to think in our life, just God's gone before, and even where we're going to pitch our tent, where we're going to be, like, he's already gone before and prepared those places for us. And yet what we can believe about what God, what we believe about what God thinks about us and murmur and complain. Um, But the Israelites had been totally trapped in a lie about God, about who God was and how he felt about them. And I know in my life that that happens to me. And I can be trapped in a lie about who God is and what he thinks towards me and what he's, do, what he's doing. And so years ago, um, I just brought in a little book here. This was my first ever sort of lie truth book. And among other things, there's one section in here I just brought um, where I just started writing out lies that I believe about God. Okay, so here is... Let's see, let me find one here. But... Um, for example, lie. I should worry about what will happen. And so I write that at the top. It's, I should worry about what will happen. God can, I think maybe at this particular time in my life, I uh, was in a financial situation. God cannot provide a job and money for us, and I should worry about that. Okay, truth uh, Romans 8.15, you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory um, in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, eight. God's able to, able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. And, um, and so on and so off. Let's see. Lie, I can mess up God's plan for my life. Hmm. truth Luke 9:56 the son of man did not to come to destroy men's life but to save them hmm. So and so on and so forth there's just pages of these you know lie i should be jealous of what other people have truth lie i'm i'm not equipped for any ministry i'm not good at those sort of things truth what God equipped us in and you could just go on and on and i just share that it's just this is this is my book of things over the years of just identifying, what am I believing here about God that's really a lie about him? And that's what the Israelites had been caught in. God hates us. Look, he's not doing anything good for us. And Moses going, truth, truth, he fought for you. He carried you. He went before you and picked out where your tent was going to be. And he didn't even realize it. Um, I've been so helped, too, by um, Ann Voskamp's just thing about writing down, just writing down. The things you see where God is, is working, your thankfulness, you're um, counting your blessings and, um, and seeing God's hand in that. So that's the prologue. That's the prologue. God reminding them what happened really to their parents. And he's just telling them he's on the, they're on the cusp of the promised land and you just see him pleading with these people. You're going to go now be the people of God. Trust him. Trust him. That's what the prologue is. Second speech. Now, he's going to move from this history, God's faithfulness to them. And he's going to move now into reviewing the law and reiterating the Ten Commandments and the law. Okay, now, some of you this summer read Leviticus, and um, you read through some of these Pentateuch books, or at least parts of them. Now, if you're like me, okay, you get up, and, and the, the still quiet of the morning is the best time. I love to meet with the Lord before the kids wake up. I've got I've got my kids 13, 10, 6, and 4, so they're getting a little bit older. But I mean, there's a, a moment in time when they wake up and it's done. You know, the still quiet of the morning is done, and they're crashing in chaos erupts. Um, if it's not kids for you, then it's just phone calls and to-do lists. And th- I mean, just you know what I mean. There's just this moment in time when the morning, that still morning, is over, and the day has crashed on, and it started. And if you're like me, you're here there. Okay, you're reading the word, and you're. Tired, maybe there's a giant cup of coffee, and I'm reading this stuff, and I'm like, okay, pigeon offerings and cubits, and you're just plowing through, like, okay, okay, what do I do with this? And what I'm praying is, as we finish up the Pentateuch, is that we'll take these laws and these things that, when we're sitting there reading them, just plowing through, going, what is this? It's so my prayer, and in my heart too, that even by the end of today, we can just leave with a bigger glimpse of like. This is so good. And not just this was painful and we (laughs) plowed through it, but that was brilliant. That what God did in setting up the old covenant and the sacrificial system and all the laws down to the pigeon offering was brilliant. And we're going to leave here and we're going to worship God at this plan of his. But even as we're bogged down in the law, the cool thing is this, is that even in the thickest part of the law, this is a love story of God for his people. It was always a love story. It always was. And undergirded, and we see it even in Deuteronomy, undergirded through the whole thing is God longing for a love relationship with his people. He loves them. And he's telling them again and again. And what he wants from them isn't actually a bunch of external rule keeping. What he wants from them is their heart. And um and he's clear that they have his. The famous, um, probably the most famous verse from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, especially if you're Jewish, is the Shema. If you've heard the Shema, and you'll recognize it. It's the central book of the Jewish Old Testament, I mean, the Jewish prayer book. And it's, I've heard the first verse that a Jewish kid will learn. Um, and it's this, it's in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. So that's the shema that the Jewish people today would say. Um, And we see even there God saying these commandments are for your heart. Love the Lord your God. That's what this is. This is what this is about. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. It wasn't about them being such a great people. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath he swore to your fathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Do you hear what he said? To his people and us as believers today, to his people, he says, God, it's not because you were, this great nation, you weren't actually, you were the fewest, but because the Lord loved you and he chose to bring you out of slavery to be his people and to set his affection on you. And that's such good news for us as Christians even today. But that's what, um, that's what God's saying here in the book of Deuteronomy. God chose them to be his people and he loved them. Um, another thing we see a lot in the first of this giant, we're in the middle of this giant Uh, Speech number two, the review of the law, it's actually divided, if you've got technical, it's divided into two sections. We're in the first section of that second speech when he's going over this. It's the general stipulations, and it's a lot of this, God loves you. And it's also calling them to faithfulness. And there's a lot, a lot, if you read through it, there's a lot, a lot about um, the destruction of idols and the severity of dealing with idols. Um, And a lot of that's just setting up. God is serious about these being his people who worship him alone, and it's a big deal, and, um, and they are to remember God's faithfulness, and they are to utter, utterly destroy idolatry. Chapters 12 through 26 is the second half of the second speech, so we're still in that middle law speech, um, but he's going to get more specific about his stipulations, and really, if you read it, it's just command after command. Um, for 15 chapters, it talks about they are to know that they are God's nation and God's land, They worship God alone, they reflect his holiness, and they represent his justice. And he's giving them specific details about how to obey that. that. Now, this side of the cross, we know that Christ came, and we can see that this is a love story, that they are going to fail, and we're going to talk more about that, that they're going to fail these commands, and that ultimately Jesus is going to keep them for us. Here's a neat picture of uh, Jesus in Deuteronomy. In chapter 27, 26, it says, This is just one, one example of the cross. It says, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. So if you don't keep the law, you're cursed. You're under a curse. In Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, it says, Then, if a man guilty of capital offenses is put to death, and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on a tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So here again, we hear the word curse. Now, listen to how Paul in the New Testament refers back to Deuteronomy to explain the gospel. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So he's referring back to the hanging on the tree being a curse. And then he, Paul says in Galatians, that's what Jesus did. Jesus became the curse for us. And it's just a brilliant story. Now, Let's talk for a minute about what do we do with the law. So we're reading through this. Okay, we've read the pigeons, the cubits. You know, you're in the middle of it. What do I do with the law? Uh, Theologians will talk about multiple purposes of the law. And let's talk about two um, here this morning. One, the first one, and really the most important one, Martin Luther says the most important, is that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. We see the law, and therefore we see our sin, and it leads us to our need for a Savior. So one purpose of the law is the law leads us to Christ, and arguably the most important. The second purpose of the law is this. The law is actually instructive on how to live. Now, it, once we're in Christ and we understand um, that we cannot obey the, we can't obey the law, that Christ fulfilled it for us, we then look to the law, though, to know, well, okay, how do we live? And, um, and so um, it's helpful then, though, to look and to understand that there's actually different categories of the law. So when you're plowing through Leviticus, Deuteronomy, these books of the law, and you're looking at these laws and you're like, okay, there's stuff in there. I mean, there's stuff in there about cotton and wool, not intermixing, right? There's stuff in there about the clean animals and the unclean animals. And so you're reading through this and you're like, okay, what do I do with that? You know, do you think, am I just supposed to skip over all that and go, okay, I'm just moving on to the cross, that's not for me. You actually have to look at the law, and some interpretive work has to be done to understand that there's three categories of law. One is there's ceremonial law, and that's like the temple system, the sacrifices, things like that. The other is that there's civil laws, which are about the like, political laws for the nation of Israel. And the third is that there's moral laws, which are the laws that are repeated in the New Testament that are for us today. They're the heart laws, like don't murder. Okay? So you've got the sacrificial laws about lambs that were ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The political nation of Israel and the system of temple worship have come to an end in Christ. Okay, we're now a spiritual Israel. Our brothers and sisters now are in the kingdom of God, right? Our family now is in Christ. Christ ended the sacrificial system. Those laws have found their fulfillment in Christ. It's not that they were bad. They, went, they just were pointing to Jesus and they ended with Christ. Um, but the moral laws or the ethical laws are the laws about our heart that are repeated in the New Testament and are applicable to us today. Does that make sense? Well, if it doesn't, I have a little song. Okay, who here has, any of you have What's in the Bible by Buck Denver? Anybody have that? Okay, uh, it's, a, it's a kid's DVD. It's kind of for school-age kids, and um, it has these little songs, and it's, it's really pretty fun. Uh, so I asked my kids last night, because we listened to the songs, I said, hey, what's that song about Leviticus? Okay, this is what they said. Okay, Now he calls it instead of saying um, ceremonial, he calls it ritual laws, which would be and ethical laws, which would be moral laws. Okay, ritual and ethical—it's not at all illogical. When you know the difference, you will see. There's much to learn that's practical from the book Levitical about holiness and living differently. So don't discard the ethical, but stop and take a breathical because you can still be holy eating bacon ravioli with a side of chocolate-covered ants and cotton patches on wool pants. It's time to jump down off the fence and shout, Leviticus makes sense. And so my little six-year-old last night was going, you can still be holy eating bacon ravioli with a side of chocolate-covered It's Leviticus makes sense, and I don't know if it actually, in fact, I don't think it does make sense to them yet, but hopefully they'll remember these songs, and someday, and even we can sit there and say, ah, oh, okay, Leviticus makes sense. There's ritual and ethical, and uh, uh, it, it makes sense. So I hope that that helps. It actually helps me. Um, but uh, Martin, Mark Deaver shared this quote by Luther, and this is um, about the purposes of the law, the leading us to Jesus and the instructive purpose. But he says the principal purpose of the law in theology is, is to make men not better, but worse. That is, it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of their sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and the blessed offspring. In other words, Luther said the principal purpose of the law is not that, oh, we can, okay, I can keep this and get better and I can check that off. The principal purpose of the law is that we see that we're utterly undone and it leads us to Christ. So that's the main purpose of it. Now, I, at this point, I just, um, I want to articulate well. This is so important to me because one thing I realize as I've studied through the Pentateuch Is that I don't understand holiness. Like, I don't understand holiness. And I really don't understand the depth of my sin like I want to. I mean, I wanna understand that God is holy. And when I study these things about the law, it helps me. I I can zip along in life with just a mild view of sin, and, you know, just Jesus is, is a Savior, and I'm a sinner. But with not with this gripping reality that Jesus is a savior and I am a sinner, and that's what I want in my life. I um. I want to get a glimpse of that. I think sometimes, and tell me if you've ever felt like this. You know, maybe you're with a friend that's a new Christian or not a Christian or something, and you're in something where someone's talking about the Old Testament law. Have you ever felt like, and again, they're talking about the pigeons the cubits and you're sitting there going you're like this is a little uncomfortable i don't know what to do with this because it just feels like i don't know what to make of this okay how do i explain this this seems weird and what i want us to leave our study this summer from is this it's not weird it's brilliant because i think what god is doing but when he's talking about cotton and wool and he's talking about these laws What he's doing, he's setting up for us that he is holy and it's extreme and it seems so specific and strange and extreme because he is extremely holy and he's got to get it into my head that he is utterly pure. Do you see what the law does? What he's doing in this, he's setting up for us and he's telling his people and Moses is telling them as they go into the promised land, he's telling them, God is so holy. He is so incredibly pure and he's gonna give you these utterly specific things to follow just so you could get in your head how perfectly pure he is. Does that make sense? And I need that, like I need extreme to comprehend that God is holy. There's a, um, and and I need to understand that God is holy, and to understand that I'm a sinner. There's a, um, a great quote by Martin Luther where he's got this friend named George Spalatin, and apparently Spalatin is struggling with, um, hi, I won't be distracted. Okay, I'm just, okay it's apparently um, Spalatin is struggling with, um, with just discouragement. He's he's found himself in some sin. And he's walking about discouraged. And have you ever felt like that? You're just kind of, people say, you know, maybe a close friend says, how are you doing? And you just go, you know, I just, I'm just feeling defeated. I'm just feeling discouraged. And you just walk around feeling like that. Well, apparently that's how Spalatin's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just down on myself. I'm just kind of defeated. And, um, and he's discouraged. And this is the letter that Martin Luther writes to him. He says, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, gravest and damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, from the greatest and most shocking sins. You want to be a painted sinner and accordingly expect Christ to be a painted Savior. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. And um, boy, that helps me. I want to get that in my head. Christ, is a, Christ had to come and die because God is Holy. And we could never keep these laws. Do you see that? We could never keep them. Christ had to come and die because we are real sinners and he is really, really holy. Um, well, that's sort of the end of the second speech, this going over the law. And um, I do, I just, just want us to leave the Pentateuch and say, boy, that was, what a brilliant love story that God would set up this law, that he would give us a picture of his holiness. And then he would send his own son to redeem, us, redeem it for us. And um, just, to, just a marvel at the story the Lord has written um, for his people. Well, the third speech is this. It's just a renewal of the covenant. And um, he's gone through the laws now. And now he's going to talk about the blessings and the curses of keeping or not keeping the covenant. Now, um, He's telling them, and he's basically in this two talking about just the severity of the consequences. Chapters 27 through 30, if they devote their entire heart to God with utter allegiance, the covenant ensures great blessings. So if they keep it perfectly, there's great promises. Um, and so, in fact, in chapter 28, there's 14 inspiring verses about the blessings of the covenant. One such verse is 28, 10 through 11. If they keep the covenant, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. So there's all these, these promises. But in that same chapter, actually in two chapters, so in 28, there were 14 encouraging verses about keeping the covenant, but there are 70 Devastating verses, devastating verses if they aren't faithful. Listen to this, 28, 36 through 37. The Lord will drive you out and the king set over you a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and a ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. So if they don't perfectly obey the covenant... They will be driven out of the land, and they will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn. Scary stuff. And you read this, and you go, I mean, they, can, they can't keep it perfect. What, what are they going to do? Like, this is horrible, right? You read this. they are horrible curses for disobedience. And the blessings are only if they perfectly obey. Mark Deaver says this. He says, failure is inevitable. And Deuteronomy leaves us with no false impression that the people will be able to maintain the demands of the covenant. Moses even says it in chapter 29, verse four, in this section, he says, to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. He knows you, you don't have the ability to keep these commands. Failure is inevitable. And what they are going to need ultimately is a new heart. And the story of of the scriptures is that God is going to not only provide for them the fulfillment of the law in Christ, but he's going to give them a new heart. There's this this language in there, and y'all can talk about this more in your groups, about circumcising your hearts. Um, It starts in verse 10, 16, says, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. God doesn't just want an external circumcision, a bunch of rule keepers who just check all the boxes and try to do it all. He has no interest in that. He wants their hearts. To he circumcise your hearts. And um, in uh, chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says that after their exile for disobedience, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your souls and live. God is going to do it. The hope, as this book comes to a close, is that God is going to do it. God's going to give you a new heart. He's going to take your heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. And I thought it was interesting. Mark Devers, he kind of asked it, and he's like, so is this a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? And Devers says, it's both. It's always both. There's no plan A and then plan B. Oh, they failed plan B. It was always a plan of redemption in which God established a covenant with works, but woven, even in the book of Deuteronomy, there's pointing, the one who will come and the covenant of grace who will fulfill the works in our place. So here we have in this section of the law and the pointing to Jesus who will fill it. Um, so inter- there's just interspersed hope and promises even at the end uh, the conclusion of the book, uh, Moses prophesies that Israel will be unfaithful and they will be um, in exile. In thirty-two eighteen, he says, you deserted the rock in his prophecy. You deserted the rock who fathered you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. But even on his deathbed speech here, Moses ends with hope and expectation. He says, there's a prophet who will come. There's an atonement that is coming. God will circumcise your hearts you will be his, he will make a way, and he's pointing to Jesus. I, um, I was in a conversation just a couple weeks ago, I think, in which with a few people, and one of the, the people kind of started criticizing some Christians, and um, they were just talking negative about them, and, and my heart started to well up, like, yeah, they should, you know, they and, and my husband, I just really wisely, he said, he just looked, and just, he said, he said, Jesus married a harlot, didn't he? And I thought it just kind of silenced us all. We're like, you're right. Jesus married a harlot. And that's what Moses is saying. God's marrying a harlot. You will fail him. You are a real great and hard-boiled sinner. And God is so holy. And he's going to end this book. He's going to detail just a help us in our little finite brains with all these images and pictures and sacrifices he's going to try to detail to us just a glimpse of what it means that he is perfect and that we need a savior and christ will come and be that savior for us i think my take home from deuteronomy is this just a couple review for me from the historical prologue, remember that God is good. Don't believe the lie. When the lie comes in your head, write it down. At least that verse, I want to say Isaiah, is not this thing in my right hand a lie. Call it a lie. Remember the truth. Who is God? God doesn't hate you. God is not out for your harm. He's the Lord, and he's working a redemptive plan in our life. Believe the truth. So number one is this. Remember God. Count your blessings. Um, number two, know that God is holy. I'm a real great and hard-boiled sinner, and I need a real savior. If you, okay, if you've ever heard me talk before, I, I you know, I always write these little poems in my journals. Um, so this is just my poem. Um, I think uh, one time when I was studying Leviticus and just thinking about the holiness of God and my own misunderstanding of that. Um, Every now and then I glimpse through an opening thick and dense to grasp a better view of sin. The spirit wields the word within. But typically I'm dulled by pride. I walk aloof my flesh to hide, forgetting that the cross was not for petty sins that could be bought with cheaper things than holy blood. Real sin led to a violent love. So bring me to a lucid moment, realizing that my atonement wasn't just for thoughts amiss, but for my whole unrighteousness. And holy blood for fragile claims, wasn't wasted or in vain. The Savior knew the child he'd buy, redeem, adopt, and satisfy. He knew her charge was greater than a shallow thought or petty sin, and he would take upon the cross to own her life and pay her loss. So let me live with sober thought. His passion here was not for naught. And when my heart is dulled by pride, draw me to my Savior's side. I just want to know that he's holy that he's a real savior, and worship him as that. Um, The last thing is this. The law leads us to Jesus, and then the Lord himself gives us a new heart to obey him and to follow him. And the temple system is gone. It's done now. It was fulfilled in Christ. And the Holy Spirit has now come and said that we're his temples, right? Right? The glory of God, just like Moses on the cusp of the promised land, he's pleading with them. If you just read, and he's pleading with them, you're going to be his people. You've got to represent him to the world. This is the way he chose to do it, to set apart a people, to send them into the world, and to let them be the representation of his glory and who he is. And now the temple's gone, and we're the temple. And if you've ever seen that movie, Aladdin, okay, so there's the genie bottle, and Robin Williams comes out, and he comes out of the bottle, and he's this big genie, and he says, one of the things he says, he says, all the power of the universe in a little bitty dwelling space. And I always think about that's like the Lord. It's like all the power of the universe, all the glory in the universe is in a little bitty dwelling space in me. It's in a jar of clay in us. And we're actually now walking temples for the Lord displaying his glory in the world. And now we have new hearts, hearts of flesh, circumcised hearts to obey him and to follow him and to love him. And, um, and that's the message, I think, of the Pentateuch. It's the pointing to Christ and it's the story of redemption for us. Let me pray. Lord, we're so thankful. We, we want to worship you. We want to understand that you're brilliant No man would have thought of this. No man could have come up with this way of doing it. And we worship you and we thank you for your law. We say your law, it's sweeter than honey on our lips. We love you and thank you for it. Um, But we recognize, Lord, that we have failed and that we needed you to send your very own son for us. So we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that this is because you loved us and that you're the great God of love. Help us this week to apply this in our life, Jesus. Amen.